Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 257. Today we're going to talk about Hart's climate proposals. <laughs> but first, I want to talk about Biden's plan, and then Hart's climate principles, and then Hart's climate proposals. So Biden's climate plan came out. I've been reading through it, and uh, I wanted to offer a few brief comments on that and then move on to the rest. So the, the problem with two main problems with Biden's climate plan. One is I don't really believe he's going to move ahead with anything that is a serious positive for the people of America or the people of the world. He is just too thoroughly owned by corporate interests to do anything positive for the people or for the world. That is my unfortunately pessimistic view of anything that would get, be uh, accomplished by a Biden administration. Another problem I have with it is that it's easy to throw a lot of money at corporations and say you're doing something for the people. I mean, you can throw a lot of money at solar panels as if you're doing something for the climate and something for the people, but it's really just putting money into the hands of oligarchs. You can throw a lot of money at windmills and act like you're doing something for the climate and something for the people, but really you're just throwing a lot of money at your campaign contributors. You can throw a lot of money at electric cars and act like you're doing something for climate and something for the people, but really you're just uh, uh, throwing money at your campaign contributors. Uh, another couple of things about the Biden plan that I have a problem with are is this, this emphasis on jobs, but you know it's not as if the workers actually get to share in the wealth or the security that comes from creating jobs. You can't just create jobs and then rely on trickle-down. They have to be strong union jobs, not only because unions aren't just for higher wages and better benefits. Unions typically are for policies that benefit society on the whole, like health care and environmental concerns. So those are a few issues I have with Biden's climate plan. Now let's go to Hart's climate principles. So whatever proposals you hear me talk about, uh, it's, it's rooted in these seven principles. So any climate legislation or agenda or any vision that we have should be rooted in principles similar to these. And these seven principles are what is very much lacking in Biden's climate plan. Principle number one, people first. People should come before profits. People should come before ideology. People should come before American exceptionalism. People should come before the free market. Any plan that you have that doesn't put people first. For, for example, if you have a plan that's just going to subsidize corporate activities, and hopefully some of that will trickle down to the workers. Well, I mean, can we talk about what NAFTA has done to workers? And can we talk about, you know, shipping jobs overseas where there are no environmental standards and no labor standards and no health and safety standards? So we need plans and proposals that put people first in spirit and in truth. Principle number two, nature has rights. Now this might sound like the strangest thing in the world to the Western mind, but corporations have rights. 
why do we give rights to corporations and not give rights to rivers? So rivers should have rights, mountains should have rights, species should have rights, ecosystems should have rights. Hey, and guess what? We already have some of this in American law. The Endangered Species Act gives rights to species, and any American can sue a business or the government under the Endangered Species Act. So we're doing some of this. The Endangered Species Act, in some small way, gives rights to species. We are already giving rights to nature. We need to do more of that. Principle number three. Care and freedom, not production and consumption, should define our economy. So, you know, if we spent our time caring for what we have, we wouldn't have to create whole new industries like the Biden plan calls for. So we should spend our economic activity on, instead of production and consumption, we're going to produce a whole lot of solar panels. We're going to produce a whole lot of electric cars. And then we're going to consume, consume, consume. We're going to consume more energy efficient washers and dryers. So instead of all that production and consumption, let's talk about care and freedom. Our economic activity should contemplate and promote care and freedom. We should be empowered to care for the forests that we have. We should be empowered to care for our loved ones. We should be empowered to care for our farmland. We should be empowered to care for our water, for our ecosystems, and the species. It's like you make a, gla- you, 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 you make a glass and you wash it a thousand times. There's a lot more activity uh, in the care of the thing than in the making of the thing. Why don't we make less, consume less, and you know, care more? That's why a universal basic income would be a great idea, because it would allow us to have more time to care for our loved ones and to do other things that we want to do. People who love nature can care for nature and get out into the forest and, and uh, remove invasive species. And people who like to garden can uh, uh, you know, care for the farmland and grow food so we can grow healthy local food so we can care for our bodies by eating healthy food. So we should put more in time, energy, and effort into care than to production and consumption. It's the American way, but the American way is not working for very many people in the world or in America. Number four, fair, uh, number four in the heart's climate principles. Number four, fairness is more important than pride or accomplishment. So if you've accomplished things in your life, great. But don't let that cloud your eyes to the need for fairness. If you have a nice home in the suburbs, fine. But don't let that blind you to the injustices that are taking place at home and abroad in the name of whatever, in the name of ideology, in the name of free market, in the name of American exceptionalism. Tens of thousands of people have died in Latin America alone in our lifetime. That's not fair. People who grow up, uh, people of color are much, much more likely to suffer exposure from toxic chemicals and the consequent 
cancer and respiratory disease and heart disease that comes from that, it's not fair for some groups of people to have a great deal more exposure to toxic chemicals than others. So fairness is more important than accomplishment or pride, and everyone deserves a fair shake, a fair share, and a fair shot. We need to stop believing in the, the sham and the lie called meritocracy. Principle number five, care of the least of these is not optional. Care of the weak and the vulnerable is not optional. Worldwide, tens of thousands of people die every day from preventable causes, including drought, including uh, bacterial disease, including malaria and the transmission of AIDS that could be prevented from a $2 a day treatment. And we prevent that happening partly because of our blind obedience to a corporatocracy. But care of the weak and the vulnerable is not optional. Principle number six, economic growth and GDP are ridiculous concepts that should disappear from the national conversation. So economic growth is like, what is the total economy? The total economy is called gross domestic product. Take all of the sales and all of the income and add it all up and you get a number. And that number is called gross domestic product as if that represents the economy and as if the economy represents human well-being. But economic growth and GDP do not represent human well-being. You know, GDP includes building of interstate highways uh, and selling cars and selling oil and making and selling weapons and, you know, charging uh, exorbitant prices for health insurance and exorbitant prices for drugs. All of that is included in GDP as it, and, and we want the GDP to grow at about two or three percent per year. It is a, it is a poor and deceptive and fraudulent indicator of human well-being. And then what's missing from GDP? Investments in nature, investments in people, investments in democratic institutions, investment of time is not included in GDP. So GDP is just a deceptive thing. You know, if you want people to believe a lie, all you have to do is repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And politicians get up there and say, we want to grow the economy. But a growing economy doesn't mean people are doing well. It's like this back in the 60s or 70s, a Brazilian general said, the economy is great, but the people aren't. You know, there's a difference between what the economy is doing and how the people are doing. Number seven, and the last of Hart's climate principles is uh, people should have the freedom to do the work they choose and not be driven by the need to pay bills. That's why I'm for a universal basic income. And I don't know if it should be $10,000 a year per person or $20,000 a year per person or more, but universal basic income was advocated uh, by Martin Luther King Jr. He said, you know, with the stroke of a pen, we can eliminate poverty. So why don't we do that? Because, he said, people don't do their best work 
when they're working as slaves for slave wages. That is not how people do their best work for humanity. People are going to do their best work for humanity when they're not always going from crisis to crisis to crisis because of scarcity, need, and want. So studies have been done and experiments have done with universal basic income. And there was a study done in Canada a few years back and they found out that people did not work less with two exceptions. So everybody worked about the same amount with two exceptions. The two groups of people who worked less were students and uh, mothers of young children. So it's not that they're working less, it's just that they're working less in activities that pay a wage. So people continue to work when their basic needs are met, but they work on slightly different activities and they're more likely to spend their time investing in things that they want to do and investing in things that make the world a better place to live. So those are Hart's climate principles and every proposal that I make is going to emerge from some version of those principles. So I wanted you to know where I'm coming from and I want you to know why my proposals are as they are and I want you to know why I have a problem with Biden's climate proposals as good as they may sound. They do not put people first. They are not rooted in an ethic that emphasizes care and freedom over production and consumption. They are not rooted, they do not contemplate the rights of nature. So we can implement Biden's climate plan and still pollute, 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 because that's what we do. Correction, that's not what we do. That's what our society does when it's run by oligarchs, because oligarchs only want to amass wealth for themselves because money has one purpose when it's in the hands of a very few. Money in the hands of a very few just wants to grow. And the only reason you put money into a corporation is because you want to get money back out with a return on investment in addition to your initial investment. Is that the way we're going to run the world? Is that the way we're going to shape and fashion the society that we live in? Another reason to have a problem with Biden's climate plan, as good as it may sound, is that care of the least of these is not really in there. He talks about jobs, but you know that's a trickle down. We're going to bring jobs, even though we still have NAFTA, even though com companies can still ship jobs overseas. You know, NAFTA could be uh, fashioned in such a way that. Yeah, you can have a you can locate a business overseas, but you're going to pay minimum wages. It might not be the same as the American minimum wage, but there are going to be standards for the operations that you have over, overseas. And there, you know, you're not going to ship overseas to a place where the environmental regulations are non-existent. You're not going to ship jobs overseas just to get away from our environmental regulations, our health regulations, our labor standards, or our wage standards. So let's talk about Hart's climate proposals. So the, uh, the first two are, 
universal basic income and Medicare for all. We want to get people out of crisis mode. We want to get people out of survival mode. You know, we don't want a world of slaves. We don't want a world of people driven from crisis to crisis to crisis because of a, because, you know, everybody should have a fair share, a fair shake and a fair shot. And Barbara Ehrenreich wrote a book in which she went undercover as a low-wage worker, as a, you know, as a maid, as a waitress, as a Walmart worker. And she shows that the life of a low-wage person, you just go from crisis to crisis to crisis. It's not because these people aren't intelligent. It's not that they aren't hardworking, but the, the system is rigged against them. And, you know, you have no choice but to you know, but to consume, uh, you know, you have little choice but to just go with the flow and you don't have very many choices of a low carbon lifestyle or a lifestyle that has a modest ecological footprint. You just do what you need to do to survive. We should be opposed to that for climate reasons as well as humanitarian reasons. So number one, we want a universal basic income. And I don't know what the exact precise ideal amount of a universal basic income should be. It's almost the more the better. There's going to be a tremendous amount of resistance to universal basic income because for one thing, you know, the oligarchs don't like it because it shows that people can survive without depending on corporate America for a job. That's a dangerous idea, and they don't want the dangerous idea that you can survive without a job offered to you by corporate America. And then politicians would lose their ability to say, we're going to go for economic growth because economic growth is what's needed for jobs, and jobs are what's needed for survival. We would get out of that whole conversation if we had a universal basic income. Andrew Yang proposed a universal basic income of $1,000 a month. Um, that's $12,000 a year. I don't think that's enough. That would be a great start. And it should not be a substitute for any existing benefits. I believe Yang's proposal said, you know, you can opt into the universal basic income, but you have to opt out of your other uh, government provided benefits. Well, that's not you can decide for yourself whether or not that it's a good deal. Well, that's an example of what's called means testing, and it divides people. Yeah, you know, means testing means people, you, you can only get this benefit if you meet certain qualifications, and then you have to fill out certain paperwork, and then you're dividing people from one another, and we don't want to do means testing. We want to give benefits to everybody. It's called a social wage. It's something that you have a right to because you exist, not because you uh, meet certain criteria that you ought to be ashamed of. So we want a universal basic income. We want to decouple jobs and survival. We want to get people out of crisis mode. We want to take care of people's basic needs, irrespective of the amount of work they do. And if we do that, they will still work, but they will work at things that matter more to society, like caring for each other, caring for the elderly, uh, caring f for... Um, people who are disabled, caring for children. And another thing that universal basic income does is it takes the edge off 
of unemployment. So if you don't want to do your job at McDonald's, you can tell McDonald's, no, thank you. I don't want your slave wages. And then McDonald's has to offer you a better deal. And then that diminishes the profits of McDonald's. And we need to diminish the profits of these multinational corporations that just want to come into our community, take our money, pollute our community, and make off with the profits. So Hart's proposals number one and two deal with universal basic income. Number three, Medicare for all. Uh, Medicare for all would be cheaper than the system that we have. The system that we have has outrageous administrative costs. The administrative costs of these health insurance companies are something on the order of 25%. Plus when they advertise on TV, you're paying for that. If you pay their premiums, you're paying for them to advertise on TV, and they're not paying so that you can buy their product. If you're not the administrator of a company, you're usually not buying, you're usually not choosing which healthcare plan you are, are under. So they're not advertising on TV to sell a product. They're advertising on TV so that, you know, if they advertise on MSNBC, then MSNBC is going to be a lot less likely to make them look bad through investigative reporting. MSNBC is not going to talk about the bad things that they do to people because the healthcare plan is pouring a lot of money into the network for commercials. So these uh, health care plans have outrageous administrative costs. You know, Medicare has something like a two, three or four percent administrative cost, whereas these health care plans have like a 25 percent administrative cost. Uh, another thing Medicare for all would do is we, we would actually be negotiating with big pharma. We pay outrageous drug prices. I have a friend who pays $800 a month for her insulin. I don't know how she does it, but she manages to do it. Because without that, you die. And it, it's, uh, it's just outrageous that these companies are holding people hostage. So if we had Medicare for all, we would be negotiating with Big Pharma. We would be negotiating with the health insurance companies. We would be negotiating with the hospital chains. We would have lower administrative costs. It would be free. At, we know that there's not a free lunch. Don't tell the oligarchs that, though. They're getting a free lunch all the time. We know that it's not free, but it's free at the point of service. So you can go and get the health care you need. Health care is a human right. So, item number four on uh, Hart's climate proposals is a social wage. Uh, so social wage includes uh, Medicare for all and includes a universal basic income, but a social wage also includes free uh, pre-K. Like parents should not have to pay for childcare; they're not in a position to pay for childcare. Childcare should be a human right and not something that you have to earn. Because the, for one thing, the quality of the childcare goes down when it's not provided. All other industrialized countries do this for people. Only the United States, which is supposedly the richest country, it also has among the biggest wealth inequality, but we should provide free 
preschool and free public college that we should do forgiveness of student loans. It should never have been that students are on the hook for you know thousands upon thousands of dollars of student debt. You know, other countries pay for college, free public college. Why can't we? Why shouldn't that be uh, a public good? When people get educated in you know, K through 12, we provide that for them because we know that it's a public good for people to be educated. So the first four of Hart's climate proposals have to do with social wage. I like the word social wage instead of social safety net because just social wages, there's solidarity there. There's solidarity between, you know, rich and poor. You get this because it's provided. You're not excluded from the public library just because you're rich. You're not excluded from public schools just because you're rich. You're not excluded from public parks just because you're rich. Now, the next few of Hart's climate proposals involve uh, getting rid of industries that we don't need. So the Biden climate plan uh, contemplates creating whole new industries. Well, creating whole new industries and then concentrating money and power in the hands of a few. Creating whole new industries that are owned by a very few uh, very rich people and institutions. We, uh, and then hoping for trickle-down. Letting the poor and the middle class be, uh, as ever, insecure in their jobs uh, you know, they can lose their job at any time. They can lose their wealth at any time due to a health expense. But more to the point, the low-hanging fruit in the climate realm is to you know, get rid of like half of our economy, the half that we don't need. And people might say, oh, if you lose half the economy, then everybody's going to be poor. No, because we're going to replace it with something else, something more sensible. We don't need all this activity that is polluting and uh, exploiting people. We don't need to be making weapons that are just going to harm people's lives. We don't want to make the gun that the U.S. empire holds to the head of another country or another group of people and say, give me your oil or else. Give me your gold or else. Give me your lithium or else. We don't want to be doing that. So when, what we need to do is reduce defense by 90%. Reduce defense by 90%. Reduce defense by 90%. So we want to reduce defense by 90% because defense does not defend us. The Pentagon does not defend us. It only makes the world more dangerous. Have nuclear weapons, for example, ever made the world a safer Place. And somebody might say, well, oh, that's just a less, uh, necessary evil. But no, it's not. Oh, we got, um, you know, we've got these evil communists that want to do us in. No, they don't. So, you know, we need to reduce, we, we need to have, we need to be making less helicopters, less Black Hawk helicopters and Apache helicopters. We need to be making less nuclear missiles and less nuclear submarines. We need to get rid of the F-35 fighter jet, the most expensive weapons program ever, and it doesn't work. The F-35 fighter jet doesn't work, very expensive. We need to just get rid of it. We need to reduce our occupation of foreign countries by 90% or 100%. We need to get out of Iraq, out of Syria, 
out of uh, you know Afghanistan. We need to get out of Israel. <laughs> we need to get out of, you know, we have a military presence in every country in Latin America. We need to get out. We, we have done in millions of people in our lifetime. Millions of people have died because of this delusion that says the United States needs to be an empire because of this delusion that says we need to go all over the world uh, creating democracy, which is not what we do anyway. Show me one place in the world where we've created democracy, and I will show you a hundred places where we have destroyed democracy and supported a brutal dictatorship. So that's about all the time we have. We're going to continue this very same topic on the next episode. Thank you for joining me. I hope you have a good day. Come back soon. Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 258. Today we're talking about climate and empire. First, I want to talk a little bit about climate principles, like Hart's climate principles, and then we'll talk about uh, how this fits into Hart's climate proposals, and then we need to take a deep dive into empire. Because under the proposals, I've got a number of items like we can reduce by 90%. We, we can get rid of this industry because this industry does not help us. Because, you know, Biden's climate plan is like, we can create whole new industries and we need to have lots and lots and lots and lots of ambition. No, we don't. We need to slow down and we need to focus on what's important so that we don't get led down yet another garden path. So the proposals I'm talking about overall, they're rooted in a few key principles like people first. Can we please put people first? Can we please get to a place where caring for people and meeting the needs of people is agreed to be the most important thing instead of these distracting illusions like American exceptionalism or the value of innovation or we're going to worship technology. You know, technology has its place, but it also has its costs. And, you know, technology serves to concentrate power into the hands of a very few people. And we need to kind of get over the process of concentrating power and money into the hands of a very few people. But the principles that underlie what I'm talking about, put pe number one, put people first. There are seven of them. Number one, put people first. Money is, people is more important than money. People are more important than ideology. People are more important than empire. People are more important than American exceptionalism. People are more important than meritocracy. Principle number two, nature has rights. Now, nature already has rights in American law. The Endangered Species Act gives rights to species, and any American citizen can sue under the Endangered Species Act uh, because we have given rights to certain elements of nature. We need to expand that. We need to give rivers rights. We need to give mountains rights. We need to give ecosystems rights. We need to give species rights. 
so that people, so that any citizen can sue to defend a river, a mountain, an ecosystem, or a species. And some people might say, some people will say that this is crazy, but we give corporations rights, and corporations aren't a real thing. They're a human invention. They are a legal fiction. So we give rights to corporations. Why wouldn't we give rights to rivers? We depend on that river for clean drinking water. We should be able to depend on that river for clean fish, but we can't because the fish are poisoned. We should be able to uh, protect our species because biodiversity is diminishing at rapid rates and we need to stop the process of killing off everything around us because at the end of the day, we depend on these species for our very own survival. Principle number three, care and freedom, not production and consumption, should define our economy. So today we're going to talk about empire and we can look at how does empire have nothing to do with caring and freedom. It has something to do with production and consumption, but should our economy be driven by production and consumption, or should our economy be driven by care and freedom? We have a lot to take care of. If we will just take care of what we have, then we won't need whole new industries. We won't need a whole lot of technology, a whole lot of innovation all of which has an ecological impact. All this technology has an impact on our water supply. It has an impact on the air we breathe. It has an impact on our personal freedom because this technology is being used against us. The surveillance state is using technology against us. And I'm not saying we should roll back the clock. I'm not saying technology is bad. I'm saying that we should emphasize care and freedom instead of more, more, more. So those are the first three of Hart's Climate Principles, kind of a representative sample, give you a feel for what we're talking about, and give you a feel how Hart Hagen is not somebody that says, you know, we need 10 billion solar panels. That's the solution to all this. We need everybody driving an electric car. No, because every electric car uh, is, represents pollution. You know, did you know that two-thirds of the pollution associated with an automobile has nothing to do with the life, the useful life of the automobile. It has everything to do with the manufacture of the automobile and the, the disposal of the automobile. So according to economist Richard Smith, two-thirds, uh, you know, 70% of the pollution caused by an automobile is from the manufacture of the automobile and the disposal of the automobile. So it doesn't matter very much if that automobile has less of an impact during its useful life. Most of the pollution uh, caused by an automobile has nothing to do with what comes out of the tailpipe. And so for these reasons, we need to go slow. I mean, you know, solar panels have their place. Let's do some of that, but it's a medium priority, not a top priority. A lot of people in government and people in the tech world and people in the industrial world and people that call themselves environmentalists want, uh, want to move forward full steam ahead on solar and wind and electric vehicles. And I'm saying that's not the low hanging fruit. The low hanging fruit is to get rid of 50% of the economy that makes the world worse. 
get rid of 50% of the economy that causes the most, most pollution, get rid of 50% of the economy that, uh, you know, things like defense, things, things like manufacture of automobiles, things like air travel. These, if you look at the alternatives, we really don't need these things. The low-hanging fruit is to get rid of those sectors of the economy that do not help average people. And I'm not saying get rid of all air travel. I'm saying get rid of 90% of it because 90% of it does not help average people. 90% of a, you know, newly manufactured automobiles do not help average people. No new fossil fuel infrastructure. If we're dealing with a climate crisis, then no new fossil fuel infrastructure. Doesn't matter how many solar panels we have if we're building new roads, new roads, new roads. And it doesn't matter uh, whether we get net metering uh, on, you know, net metering is when, you know, it, it, net metering is fair. It's not, net metering is when you are able to, when you, when you have a solar panel, you're able to sell some of your power back to the grid. Nothing wrong with that. But we can do net metering until we're blue in the face. But if we're still building roads, building roads, building roads, and if our utility is still a for-profit institution that wants to steamroll everybody in its path, then it won't matter whether or not we have net metering. In fact, net metering is a huge distraction so long as our utility is owned by multinational corporations, so long as our utility is a creature of Wall Street and just wants to extract as much as it can from our community, irrespective of the impact. So I'm trying to give you a feel for why uh, some things, you know, why I have a different sense of priorities from your mainstream environmentalist who is an advocate of solar power, electric vehicles, wind power, a smart grid. Nothing wrong with most of those things, but they are a medium priority and they are not the high priority. They are not the low-hanging fruit. So we're going to be talking about why we should reduce defense by 90%. Reduce defense by 90%. Reduce defense by 90%. We're going to be talking about why we should reduce air travel by 90%. Reduce air travel by 90%. Reduce air travel by 90%. Reduce new planes by 90%. Reduce new planes by 90%. Reduce new cars by 90%. Reduce new cars by 90%. Reduce new cars by 90%. There's no reason for us to be churning out all these new cars when we're going to have to get to a point very soon when we are getting by with a lot less cars. And it's not about austerity, it's about abundance. If you look at the abundance that is available to us, because the, this cars, the purpose of a car is not transportation. The purpose of a car is to make a profit for the oil company, the insurance company, uh, the, the big banks, and the auto company. That's the, the purpose of a car is to make a profit. You know, back in the 40s and 50s, we, the government plowed all this money at the behest of GM, at the behest of Alfred Sloan, the head of GM. They plowed all of this money into interstate highways 
and none of this money into modernizing trains or any other type of mass transit. We could have invested in mass transit, but, but that wasn't the thing that we did. So what I'm saying that the transportation system we have is not a creature of the free market. It's not a creature of the democracy. It's not a creature of human nature. It is a contrivance. We have the transportation system that we have because of big business and big government. And we can change that, but not if we just kind of go along to get along incremental change, a few solar panels here and there, drive mile electric car. That's not how we get real change, and that's not the low-hanging fruit. So in this episode, we're going to talk about how to reduce defense by 90%, reduce defense by 90%. And the way we're going to do that is take a little bit of a deeper dive into empire, because we have been told so much, we have been told so many lies. The history that we get is not history, it's propaganda. When you have history that emphasizes presidents and wars, that's not history, that's propaganda. We need to learn the real, true history, especially the history since World War II, because that, you know, lots of things have changed since World War II. So let's go back that far. So in a minute or two, we're going to take like a decade by decade overview of empire. And this is important so that you'll know how much it has cost us. This is important so that you will know that the world we live in is not a result of forces. It is a result of choices. It is not inevitable that we should have lived in the world that we have. It is not inevitable that the average person should face such stark scarcity in their lives. We are being robbed every day by defense. We are being robbed every day by cars. We're being robbed every day by fast food. We're being robbed every day by a business environment that emphasizes Wall Street instead of small local businesses. So let, let me give you a feel for the, what we've done, you know, how we have been robbed. So, you know, the war machine costs every American thousands of dollars per year. Three to six thousand dollars per year is what the war machine costs us. And here's the result of that. So I have this list here called U.S. Foreign Policy Body Count. It's like how many innocent people have died due to U.S. foreign policy since 1945. And these are not in chronological order. These are in the order of the highest number of people who have died because of our tax dollars and because of our empire. So Vietnam War between 1960 and 1975, three million people died. The Iraq War from 2003 to the present, uh, let's say go back to 1991 to the present, uh, about two million people, at, at least one million, 
it, it's hard to know because empires don't stop to count bodies. When you're rolling in with all your, your industrialized weaponry, you don't stop to count bodies. So it's hard to know how many people in Iraq have died, but two million is not, and and out of the, it's not an outrageous number. At least, at least one one million is like laughably low for the number of people that have died in Iraq due to warfare and due to sanctions since the early 90s. In Indonesia, very few people know that at least a half million people died in the 60s because of an American orchestrated coup against their popularly elected dictator. In Guatemala, in the mid-50s, they got rid of Jacobo Arbenz and the resulting civil war that lasted 40 years killed 200,000 people. The United States, at all relevant points in time, was at the wrong side of that supposedly civil war. In, uh, in Afghanistan, about 200,000 people have died. The longest war in uh, the longest war in American history, we're still there because it has nothing to do with combating terrorism. It has everything to do with control of resources and con it has everything to do with geopolitics and it has everything to do with greed and avarice and straight up murder. In El Salvador in the 80s, uh, 85,000 people died in a supposedly civil war. The United States was on the side of the government and the government was just slaughtering people in the streets, slaughtering entire villages. And that, you know, this is because of your tax dollars in the name of the American empire, in the name of the flag. So you tell me, does the flag stand for freedom? If we're killing all these people all over the world, then they don't think the flag stands for freedom. And Americans are so brainwashed, they don't know the reality of their history. Continuing on the list, Argentina in the 1980s, uh, about 100,000 people uh, died. In, uh, in Nicaragua in the 1980s, about you know 50,000 or more people died. We had the, the Contras, so we're, we're arming the Contras. Uh, the, the, the Sandinistas were in power. The Sandinistas were basically the good guys. So we're on the, you know, arming the bad guys against the good guys. About 50,000 people die. In Chile in the 1970s, about 30,000 people die. And so I've, I've gone from Vietnam through Iraq, through Indonesia, Guatemala, Afghanistan, El Salvador, Argentina, Nicaragua, and Chile. And that doesn't even count the people that die from starvation due to famine, the people that die from, uh, from thirst, the people that die because their crops are failing, the people that die because we can't be bothered to give people a $2 treatment per day to cure malaria or HIV. It, it, it doesn't count the people that die from uh, increased strength of storms like hurricanes and cyclones and typhoons and flooding. That is because of your tax dollars and mine, and that is the true nature of the United States empire. And this is not something you'll hear in school. It's not something you'll hear on MSNBC or CNN. It's not something you'll hear on Fox News. Those institutions, the media and our educational system, will not tell you the true nature of our empire. 
Also not included in the list above are the Iran-Iraq war, where you know that happened in the 80s. The United States is selling weapons to both sides of the war. The United States is the biggest arms dealer in the world by far. Why do we do that? Because we don't have a government of, by, and for the people. We have a government that is of, by, and for the privileged few. It's like uh, one of my friends, Jordan, says, you know, it's the United Corporations of America. It's really not the United States of America. It's not, it's not we the people, it's we the corporations. It's who runs the show. Now let's take it decade by decade. So what we're doing here is we're learning the true nature of the United States empire based on our true history, not based on the pablum that we get in school or the propaganda that we get in the media. So let's go from the 1940s to the 1950s to the 1960s to the 1970s to the 80s and on up to the present. <clears throat> so 1940s, the atomic bomb was developed. Uh, the state of Israel was established and the United Nations was established. The nuclear weapons should never have been developed, but even if they were, they, they did not need to be used. Even if they had been used once, they need not be uh, constantly escalated. The fact that we have nuclear weapons, especially to the extent that we have them, shows that when people talk on, on the news, politicians and pundits on the news talk about um, talk about national security. I mean, there's no such thing as national security. Uh, you know, they've done nothing but make us insecure. They when they talk about national security, they're talking about the security of corporate interests overseas. And also, when they talk about national security, they're talking about protecting themselves from the population. That's what surveillance is all about. You know, protecting, when they talk about terrorism, they're talking about nothing but, you know, preserving their own power base. Continuing with the 1940s, the state of Israel was established. Today, Israel gets $3.9 billion a year in military aid. And, you know, that doesn't do good in the world. It helps corporations, but it doesn't do good in the world. Also in the 1940s, the uh, United Nations was established and we signed on to the United Nations Charter and the United Nations Charter says all members shall settle their international disputes by peaceful means in such a manner that international peace and security and justice are not endangered. All members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or the political independence of any state. And the United States has done nothing but violate that treaty ever since. There has never been a declared war. There's never been a war that the U.S. has engaged in since 1945 that was not a war of aggression. Every president since 1945 has been a war criminal, and we have to realize that and get the meaning of it. Otherwise, we will not survive this climate thing. You know, climate change is a symptom of a system that gives power to the to, to gives too much power to a violent few people, a few people that are willing to use violence and lie uh, in order to promote their own interests. 
So let's go to the 1950s. 1950s, we had the war in Korea. And the, the sham of the war in Korea, as well as Vietnam, was yet, oh, you had North Korea and South Korea, and you had North Vietnam and South Vietnam. And in both cases, uh, the United, the, the southern part was a uh, supposedly a democratic regime that was under attack by the communists in the north. But that is just, a, you know, that... <laughs> Uh, South Vietnam was a fascist dictatorship. We were on the side of a fascist dictatorship. And in Korea, we were on the side of a fascist dictatorship. In Korea, three million people died. Uh, you know, were bombing dams, you know, bombing dams that provided irrigation for the rice. That means famine and starvation. And don't think these people have not forgotten this. Americans have forgotten it because they were never taught it to begin with. But don't think the people of Korea have not forgotten this. So we're doing a whirlwind, a whirlwind tour through history here. We're in the 1950s. We're talking about Korea. In the uh, 1950s, there was also Iran. Mohammad Mossadegh was a popularly elected uh, prime minister of Iran uh, who was deposed by a CIA coup. You know, the U.S. destroyed a democracy and replaced it with a brutal dictator called the Shah of Iran. And we wonder, you know, we are not the good guy. When it comes to Iran, we are not the good guys. We can criticize them all we want, but we are not the good guys. Also in the 1950s, there was Guatemala in 1954. Jacobo Arbenz, just like, exactly parallel to Mohammed Mossadegh in Iran. Jacobo Arbenz was a popularly elected prime minister in Guatemala who wanted to do a little bit of land reform. FDR was his hero. He wanted to do a little bit of social uh, justice work and he was deposed because he was said to be a communist and the Eisenhower administration did this. Eisenhower is well thought of, but I, I don't care much for Eisenhower or any other president because they're frickin' war criminals and they authorized these operations and why should we be okay with this? So if we, if we continue this type of, not just hawkish, but uh, you know, bloodthirsty foreign policy, we will not survive the climate crisis. We just don't have the systems in place to be humanitarian or to, be, or to even have common sense in our foreign policy or in our industrial policy. 1960s, the top three items on the foreign policy agenda were Cuba, Vietnam, and Indonesia. So in Cuba, Fidel Castro came into power. We've been taught our entire lives that Fidel Castro is a dictator. I'm not saying he wasn't authoritarian in some respects, but the people of Cuba are better off, and the United States is not the good guy in this situation. If the people of Cuba were worse off Fidel Castro would have been overthrown a long time ago, but the United States has never been able to get the people of Cuba on our side because they know that they're doing pretty well compared with what they had before. Yes, they're poor because they have sanctions against them, because the United States has, a, has criminal sanctions. The entire world is against the sanctions that we have on Cuba, but the sanctions stay because we're basically 
bloodthirsty war criminals. At least our government is, and the the businesses, you know, people like Marco Rubio, aka Narco Rubio. He's a you know he's a cokehead and a drug dealer and a U.S. senator, and uh, you know people like that are, are driving our policy in relation to Cuba. So also in the 1960s we had Vietnam, millions of people die, slaughtering farmers in the countryside, slaughtering whole villages. Uh, there's no excuse for it. Also a little known fact: Indonesia. We orchestrated 500,000 people being killed in Indonesia, all supposedly to fight communism, which is a big sham and a big fraud. Let's go to the 1970s. We overthrew, uh, in, in, overthrew Salvador Allende in Chile and uh, installed a, a brutal dictator by the name of Augusta Pinochet or Pinochet. And you know we're favoring fascists and get, getting rid of supposedly communists. You know, Salvador Allende was a sensible guy, and he was elected. So if you have a, a Marxist who was elected, can we not let the Marxist continue? Well, that would require that you care about democracy, and we don't care about democracy. Also, in the 1970s, there was East Timor, which was, uh, it had been a province of, of the Portuguese Empire. It had been a colony of the Portuguese Empire. Uh, the Indonesian military is, is slaughtering villages for like 20 years. The Indonesian military is slaughtering people while the U.S. looks the other way. On a percentage basis, it represents the greatest genocide since World War II, and the U.S. knew exactly what was going on. President Car um, yeah, Carter, uh, Johnson knew, well, let's, let's say uh, Ford, President Ford knew what was going on. President Carter knew what was going on. Reagan knew what was going on. Um, and Clinton knew what was going on. Clinton finally called off the dogs, but not until a, a couple hundred thousand people have been killed. And this is U.S. foreign policy. And then also in the 70s, that's when Afghanistan started. That's when we started arming Osama bin Laden. And we're going to have to pick it up there when we come back next time. Thank you for joining me. Hope you have a nice day. Come back soon. Mm -hmm.